Reading today's scripture from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 24, from the NIV translation. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Thanks be to God for his word. Will you please join me in prayer? Lord God, a moment ago we were singing uh, about how we wanted to become more aware of your Holy Spirit. And we were inviting your Holy Spirit to walk among us and to, to speak into us. And God, the great part about it is you want to be with us. And you're already here because we've invited you to be here. And we, Lord, this morning we come here into your presence and we really need to just be aware of you. And we need to be aware that you want to speak into my heart and into my life. You want to speak into this and into us as, as your children. And so, Lord, I, I want to invite you to make me aware of you this morning, um, to make me aware. Um, I know I can do that because I've been adopted as your child, and you have welcomed me into your family. And as your child, you say, Corey, I, I, I want you to know I'm here. I, wa- I want to speak into your life. And as your child, you treat me as a unique individual. You, you cause me to grow at the pace that I need to grow, and you, need, you teach me at the, the rate that I need to be taught. You make me comfortable in understanding who I was made to become. And so this morning, Lord, I just pray that you would, you would just teach me to be aware of you. Teach me as your child to be aware of your presence. And God, I want to pray that you would also teach me to look deep within to look inside of myself and see 
And, and I pray this for all of us, Lord, that we would be able to look inside and see ourselves the way that you made us to be, to see who we are, to understand the good, the bad, the ugly. And Lord, I pray um, that we would be able to look beyond where we are today. We'd be able to look beyond our faults and our failures and our misery and to be able to see that you are stronger and greater than all of that. And, and Lord, because of that, because you can see beyond it, you can also see me for, for what is yet to come, and I pray that I would see that as well. Lord, I want to thank you for the fact that I, 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 I can be forgiven of sin, and I am forgiven for my sin. And I, and I want to thank you for, for, the, for the reality that I don't need to come to church wondering what it is that I need to do to earn your love. And I don't, as your child, I don't need to stand here and go, what do I need to do to be better? You've already made me better through your death and through your life. I, I just have to embrace your love. God, I pray that you would teach us as a, as a people to love each other the way that you loved us. Um, to be able to look at each other and, and to see ourselves um, as people who are passing on your love from one person to another, um, to, to sacrifice together, to give together, to, to build into each other, to accept each other unconditionally with your love, to set aside our own, our own set of standards and whatever and just say, God, I'm taking this person in the way that you do. We're a family. And as a family, we're strong. When each of us is strong, we speak to each other, we build into each other. Teach us to listen to each other's hurts and pains. Teach us what it means to, to grow as one, one body. Father God, we also want to lift into your hands some of the, the things that we see coming in our church life. We want to pray for our Roots Seminar in particular, um, the next seminar. I pray, Lord, that it would be a tool that's used uh, widely to understand how we can speak your, your truth in, into, into the lives of those who are around us. Um, Father, I pray that right now you would, just be, um, you would just be preparing our hearts for that. Father, we want to think of Pastor Ken as he continues on his sabbatical. We pray that it would be a time of rest and rejuvenation for him. We pray that uh, in this time he would just really be refreshed. Lord, we want to pray for Pastor Norb now as he comes to speak to us and to share your word. Um, I want to pray that he would be acutely aware of your presence. And he would just be acutely aware of what you are trying to speak into his life and to us through him. Father God, we just lift this into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Corey and Barry, for reading scripture, and Lynn and team for leading us in worship. And uh, it's always good for us to sort of be educated in the process. And I think um, for us, when we come to church, part of studying God's word is about learning and being educated as well. And we have uh, had several different voices up here over the last number of weeks from Corey Anderson, who just prayed, to Kyra Hammer, Hammer last week, and Sid Page next week. Um, 
And not only does everybody have a different style, I also know that many different pastors have different preparation uh, methods, if you will. And um, for me, I, I, I sort of feel like I'm a grazer. I, uh, I, I, <clears throat> I pray early in the week and continually and read and think and take some notes. And oftentimes I do that in the last hour before I go to bed. I'm thinking back on this and and there's been a few times where I'll wake up in the morning and it's just a thought was there and I make sure I get that down or just whatever that style is. And then I spend Saturdays typically then writing, um, which is not very good actually because it puts a lot of pressure on when it's lingering 24 hours away, right? And, um, uh, and yesterday was kind of an unusual day because I had intended to write my sermon and it was actually my birthday. So... Um, and I don't say that to, you know, get all your well wishes and happy birthdays. It's too late for that. You missed it. You blew your chance. <laughs> but um, what was a little bit annoying was the fact that, uh, you know, if I'm at my computer and all of a sudden, you know, another notification, somebody posted something on Facebook and so you got to go read that. And so it was really distracting, actually, all day long getting these messages. But I discovered actually something very important and it was kind of key to this, uh, to this message, actually, is that the degree to which um, uh, the degree to which people really loved me indicated the degree to which they would extend their well wishes. Um, just follow me on this. So, the people that were somewhat off at a distant that you know, I, like I went to high school with, it was like happy birthday. It's like oh thanks. I mean they acknowledged it. They took time. That was nice. They showed a little love. That's good. Um, uh, the other people then who were a little bit closer, you know, said like, happy birthday, because that's what you say on somebody's birthday, and then added, you know, um, uh, there was one that was good, wish you many more years, and I'm like, well, I hope so, I mean, really, you know, um, and then um, those people that were, you know, a little bit closer yet that uh, had my wife's cell number texted her and said, tell Norb happy birthday. It was actually my sister-in-law, and I saw it there. It came in. I saw it first, so I just texted her back with Tina's phone and said, tell him yourself. And, um, <laughs> and that created actually kind of an interesting exchange after a while because I did include my own number, so then not long after that, she said, happy birthday. I used to love you. And, um, and so we kind of went from there and had fun with that. And then other friends texted me and, you know, actually had some kind things to say to me and add to it, and that was always nice. And... And, uh, but then those that really loved me actually left a coffee mug on my front porch and brought gifts. Um, so, you know, if you want to, anyways, you, you, you choose how you want to respond to that. But um, and those of you who do love me, but you just didn't send a note, it's not too late. I'll accept them until midnight tonight. And then I'm just going to unfriend all of you who didn't uh, I'm kidding, of course. <clears throat> Not about the unfriending, but about... Anyways, um, but the point I want to make is simply this, right here. That love really is more than words. It's a pretty simple truth, um, but it's also very clear. In fact, we can say that we love someone all that we want, but if we don't back up our words with action, the words can very quickly fall silent. We've been in this series of messages in the study of 1 John that we're just calling Transforming Love. And uh, started this back in October, took a break uh, through the Christmas, and then came back to it here in January. And this 
particular section that Barry read for us this morning is, again, one of several that drive home this truth, that love, true and genuine love, can transform. It transforms our lives, it transforms our families, it transforms our churches and our communities. Some have described the letter of 1 John like a, like a spiral staircase, uh, coming back to some of the same topics again and again, but each time from kind of a different perspective or a different angle. And the one thing that we've been saying about this letter is, all, uh, is that this letter is all about knowing with absolute certainty whether or not we are a Christian. And this, I believe, is very relevant. Because some people doubt when they probably shouldn't doubt, and many have certainty that they are in fact a Christian when maybe they shouldn't. Because people will say all the time, well, I'm a Christian. And really the follow-up to that is, well, what does that mean when you say, I'm a Christian? Or, uh, how do you know that you're a Christian? And the Apostle John, uh, who, he, who himself described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, whom we've been calling Grandpa John to kind of give us this image of this kind, loving, grandfatherly type person, or as Kyra introduced us last week to the thought of Trainer John. And I wish I had that picture again. I was going to snag it, but I missed it. But if you were here last week, he had a great contrasting picture. And what I liked about that also is that what we'll see in a few minutes is that John, in writing this letter, loves to do these contrasts as well. And uh, the contrasting picture, of course, was that first, you know, angry, mean, you know, you got to get with it kind of guy and, you know, give me 10 kind of thing. Or a beautiful picture of the grandfather running behind his child on the beach and just to encourage him along and offering him encouragement and, and uh, you know, if the kid tripped and fell, he'd be there to pick him up and set him up and keep going. You're good. And that was a great visual picture that we had last week about Trainer John. And in this letter, we keep coming back to this, there are these three tests that we can use to examine ourselves, right? There's a theological test. It's the test of true belief. What do we really believe about Jesus? There's the moral test or the test of true obedience. Do I do what is right? And we're going to see a little bit of that in this message this morning. And the third one is the social test. It's the test of true love in relationship with with others and particularly other believers. How do I demonstrate my love for them? And two weeks ago when I spoke, the, the emphasis really was on that theological test. What do I believe about Jesus? Was he, as he claimed to be, the Son of God who came and lived and died and rose again, victorious over sin and death? Or was he some other reasonable facsimile of that? Today the focus is going to be on this social test. Do I pass the test of true love? John, while he is this grandfatherly, kind, loving person he also chooses to be very clear and direct. He doesn't mince words. He can be very black and white, and he's a master of making these incredibly bold contrasts. And as we move into this next section, he uses contrast to communicate with great effectiveness the difference between love and hate, or life and death. And John begins again here by reminding his, leader, his readers of the message 
you heard from the beginning. Now, this point was very obviously very important to John because he, kept, he says that a few times, right? This message that you've heard from the beginning. And it was important because there were some people who were starting to twist that original message, and they were saying that Jesus wasn't really the Son of God. And so he's like saying, listen, I know what some people are saying and what you're hearing out there, but friends, remember what you heard from the beginning. And they had heard from John, who was an original disciple of Jesus, an eyewitness of the major events of Jesus' life, his ministry, his, his trial, his, his death, his resurrection. John was there. He saw it all. And so he's an incredibly credible witness. Speaking from not hearsay or things that were passed on to him, but speaking from firsthand experience. And what they heard from John was the message of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That God took on flesh, lived among us, died in our place, paid the penalty for our sins, and rose again. And by his grace, through faith, we are saved and have eternal life. And John says that the evidence that we have this eternal life is this. We should love one another. Second half of verse 11. We should love one another. Now this isn't the first time we've heard this or that they have heard of this either. And so... What I think we can take from this is simply this. I'll put it in this, in this phrase. The proof of life, the proof that we have eternal life in Jesus is simply love. Right? The mark of genuine Christianity is love. And John illustrates now what he means by love one another by using first a negative example and then a positive one. The negative one, interestingly enough, he says is, hey, listen, don't be like Cain. Do not be like Cain. Verse 12. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now when we read a reference to this, it always is helpful to go back and and go, well, what was that all about? And we find the account of Cain and Abel, his brother, in Genesis chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. I'll read a few verses in a few minutes. But this has always been a powerful story to illustrate the destruction caused by hate and by jealousy, by sin. It also would have been well known in the early Christian community. And so John writing this, people's familiarity with it immediately would have helped them understand the point that John was making. Let me read from verse 1 in Genesis chapter 4. Now Abel, or Adam, sorry, now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. Okay, so Adam and Eve, they have two sons, Cain and Abel. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. Now the Lord accepted Abel and his gift, 
but did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted, he says to him, if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, Let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, Where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's keeper? But the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And the story goes on from there. Now, here's the thing. As soon as we hear that, one of the thoughts immediately is, well, why was Abel's sacrifice accepted and Cain's not? But we're not actually told why that was the case. Now, there are several different explanations as to why God accepted it, uh, accepted Abel's gift but not Cain's. But the reality is, in this context, it doesn't really matter. What matters is what we do know, that Abel got it right and that Cain didn't. And so for whatever reason, we don't really know, these two brothers came at this issue of giving a gift differently. Now you have to assume too that these guys were raised in the same home, in the same context. They would have understood what was the right thing and the wrong thing to do. And what we notice is that really Cain had nothing to complain about. Because he would have known what was acceptable and what wasn't. But the result is still that Cain was very angry and he looks dejected. And so the point of the story is not about why one gift was accepted and one wasn't. Of course it starts with one was and what one wasn't. Well, easy for me to say. But, but Cain, when he finally realizes his gift wasn't accepted, instead of making things right at that point, he again responds in the wrong way. Because God comes to him and he asks, Cain, why, why are you angry? Why do you look so dejected? Well, what's the answer? Because you didn't accept my gift. To which God replies, listen, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? You see, God wasn't shutting the door on Cain. It's like God came to him and says, okay, Cain, so you didn't get it right the first time. That's okay. I'm going to give you another chance. You can come and get it right now. But if you don't, he says, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. That's a very graphic picture of the temptation and the lure of sin, isn't it? And the response to that is God continues to say, you need to subdue it and be its master. Don't let sin control you. But Cain was slow to learn. And so one day, despite the fact that God had given Cain another opportunity to make things right, Cain takes his brother Abel out into the fields. He attacks him and kills him. And God comes along and asks Cain, look at, where's Abel? Cain says, I don't know. 
And really, am I my brother's keeper? Now, of course, God already knew what had happened. And the story goes on from there. But here's the point. Cain refused to do what was right. Three times, at least, in this little passage. Did what he did to his brother. Lied about it. Had the opportunity to make it right, and he still doesn't do it. Ends up killing his brother. Or doesn't do the gift, sorry, and lies, and then kills his brother. And so he started this cycle of sin that probably moved fairly quickly through these stages of first being jealous. You know, Cain's getting special treatment from God. Ultimately to hatred. (laughs) Just having a, a strong, hostile reaction to his brother. Enough that it causes him to attack him and murder his own brother. Abel did the right thing. Cain didn't. And so Cain was jealous of Abel. Now, if there's one thing that unrighteousness can't stand, it is righteousness. And we see this is what happened with Cain and Abel. And so, verse 13, then, John continues. He says, Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you for doing what is right. This happens all the time, doesn't it? You're in high school, maybe? Your friends say, hey, what are you doing this weekend? We're all going over to so-and-so's place, and we're going to get smashed. And then we don't know what's going to happen after, but do you want to come? It's like, nah, no thanks. Loser. Right? Unholy people don't usually respond well to holy people. Or you work with a group of guys and, 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 and they're sharing crude and profane jokes and you're like, ah, I can't laugh at that. That's disgusting. Pretty soon people realize, oh, I don't want to tell any jokes around him. He's no fun. Right? That kind of stuff happens. I know we live in that realm where, where when we come into contact with people and we bring life, <laughs> not death. And people say, you know what, we don't, we don't really want anything to do with that. See, when you and I choose to live in radically different ways than the world around us, it makes people uncomfortable. And this discomfort may show itself sometimes in jealousy and sometimes in hatred. And this isn't an unusual teaching. This is what Jesus taught too. He said in John chapter 15, verse 18, 19, he says, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. I mean, what did the world, in sort of a general term, do to Jesus? They hated what he stood for. And so they killed him. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. He says, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. And it's interesting, and I won't make too much of this, hopefully, but he says, so... Uh, why should we be surprised when the world hates us? 
And, and the reality is maybe if we're honest with ourselves, the real surprise is that maybe we don't experience this response as often as we should. Why? Because maybe the differences aren't that significant. Maybe they're not that noticeable. Maybe we are just like everyone else. And so there's no contrast. Nothing to be upset about. Nothing to make people uncomfortable with. Now, if people know that you're a Christian at work, and, and I'm sure this has happened to some of you, and, and they, you know, they swear, or they use the Lord's name in vain, some people will actually say, oh, oh I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. Right? They kind of back off a little bit. But other people, they might just keep doing it to throw it in your face. John goes on to write in verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And this again echoes what John wrote in his gospel in chapter 5, verse 24. I tell you the truth, he says, those who listen to my message, that original message, the message of the gospel, and believe in God who sent me, have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. And so John just reminds us again that the proof of having eternal life is because we love each other. And he uses this phrase then, they've passed from death to life. Or other translations use this phrase, they have crossed over. And so what he's saying, and there's a bit of a word picture here that's very helpful for us in understanding what it means to actually become a Christian. He says, at one time, they were on this side of the line, okay? Here's the line. They're on this side with Cain and death. But they crossed that line of faith to this side. With Abel. And now on this side, life and love characterize their lives. So love, then, for others is the evidence of our life in Christ. And this is very important because if we get this wrong, we might think that all we have to do is love others over here and then God will love us. Like how Corey prayed this morning. It's not about somehow you know, you know, coming to church and being better so God will love us more, right? It's about understanding that we are loved. We are loved. And he offered this way for us to go from this side of the line where it was, where it was death to this side and cross over where there's life and love. Because he loved us. He made a way for that to be possible. So he loves us and died for us. And when we believe that and cross over the line of faith, then we demonstrate, in fact, that this is now our new experience, our new reality, and we demonstrate that by loving others. In fact, it could be said that one of the ways that we know we are Christian is that we now have this inner drive that causes us to love and care for others. So I have a very direct but very important question for you this morning. For every one of us. 
What side of the line are you on? Are you on this side? Or have you crossed over? You've crossed that line of faith. You've put your hope and your trust in Jesus. And how can we test that we're then on this side? It's by asking, do we love our brothers and sisters? And and it can't be singled out and sort of set apart from all of the other tests because the questions of what we really believe about Jesus is still the single most important test. That's how we put our faith and trust in Jesus in the first place. But if we say, yes, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he died for my sins, well, then we prove that. We prove that to be true by loving others. And John actually then states the flip side of that. He says, anyone who does not love remains in death. Don't you love how John paints this? It's so black and white. Easy to wrap our minds around with. Might make us a little uncomfortable. But if we're over here, life, love, joy, Peace, the presence of God, light. I mean, you go on. It's incredible. All because of what Jesus has done. But John's not finished yet. (laughs) Doesn't let us off the hook too easy because we say, well, you know, I've never really, like, murdered anybody. So I can't be that bad. John says in verse 15, anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. (laughs) It's pretty heavy, isn't it? But again, it, it echoes the teaching of Jesus, right? From the Sermon on the Mount, which John would have been sitting in on the grass with the other disciples and all the crowd that gathered around, and he would have heard Jesus say these words for himself the very first time. He said, you have heard that your ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. That's what your ancestors said. But I, Jesus, say to you, if you're even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now, you know there's a whole sermon in there, but the point is this. It's not enough to just conform on the outside. Because what Jesus really cares about is the attitudes of our hearts. And if we even just wish that someone was dead, he says, well, you you may as well do it because you've already done it. You can't think like that. The attitude, he says, is just like the act. And and so so the picture that, that really is here is that you can't be saying, oh, I love Jesus, but then hate your brother and sister. It's... It's incongruent, right? Like, it doesn't even make sense. Now, if you're on this side, you might say, well, I hate that person. But if you're on this side, now things change. Our attitudes change. And we love one another. So that's the negative, okay? Don't be like Cain. And the evidence that you're not is that you've moved from death to life, and now love and not hate characterizes your life. But what does that love look like? Honestly, right, our world is confused about love. And we have all these different means. But what is the heart of this love? In a word, self-sacrifice. That's the heart of love. 
The essence of love now is self-sacrifice. How do we know? Because now he said, don't be like Cain. Now he says, be like Jesus. This is how we know, verse 16, what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You see, if hatred ultimately manifests itself in murder, then love reveals itself in sacrifice. When John writes, this is how we know what love is, he's about to define what love is. And, what's really, and, that, and, and that is really important, because in our world we have lots of wacky ideas about love, and love is confused with sex. We talk about loving others in the same way that we talk about loving pizza, right? Like it's, it's just sort of a flippant thing that we use sometimes. But the world sings, oh, all we need is love. Tina Turner sings, what's love but a secondhand emotion? And John says, this is love. Jesus died. That's it. Jesus died. He laid down his life. And the idea here is of setting aside something, kind of like a piece of clothing. And in John chapter 13, verse 4, Jesus sets aside his garment and washes his disciples' feet. And and, and the intended meaning of these words suggests this. It's divesting oneself of something. Okay? Divesting, giving it away that is precious and personally valued. For Jesus... He gave his life. Mark, in his gospel, captures this when he writes, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Please know this. Jesus didn't die to be an example. He died to bear our sins, to rescue us. Okay? Let me picture this for you. Let's just say you're sitting at the end of a pier, and a lifeguard comes running by and jumps into the water, and as he's going into the water, he says, I'm going to show you how much I love you, and I'm going to save you. And you're just sitting there, well, it's not a problem. I'm perfectly safe here on the edge of the pier. But he dies in the process. And we're going, that kind of makes no sense at all. Why would he do that? I mean, I was safe. He didn't need to do that. And, you know, what's the point of him willing to give up his life for us? He didn't need to die. But if you were in the water, drowning, with no hope of ever being saved, and your certain end result of that predicament is death, now when the lifeguard jumps in and gets us to safety, but he in doing so dies in the process, we know that he loved us to the point of willing to give up his life for us. And friends, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. We were drowning. We were dead in our sin. And he gave up his life so that we would have eternal life. Jesus' path to the cross marks the selfless, self-giving way of life to which his followers are called. And, And so it ought to inspire our love for others. And of course, this is the ideal. It's kind of out there because most of us will never ever be ultimately called, you know, to that ultimate sacrifice or literally giving our lives for the sake of someone else. But if we just stop and think about what self-sacrifice means, okay? What does self-sacrifice mean? It's a dying to our selfish desires and interests, okay? Dying to our selfish desires and interests. Now suddenly, a whole new realm of opportunities and possibilities opens before us that we see in our normal, everyday activities. Every relationship we're in gives us an opportunity 
to die to our selfish interests. And John gets real practical and he stuns us with a heart right, hard right, right between the eyes. Verse 17, listen, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Ouch. Sobering, isn't it? What's he saying? We see firsthand a legitimate, basic, practical need, but there is no movement in us whatsoever of pity and compassion. How can the love of God be in that person? perfect biblical illustration of this is the account of the Good Samaritan. Now, I don't have time to go into all the details, but what you probably know is that it was the Good Samaritan who found the Jewish man all beat up on the side of the road and bleeding, and he came along and helped him and bandaged him and made sure he got all the help that he needed. Listen, there are so many places and people that give us the opportunity to love self-sacrificially. When we put aside what we want, what we need, when we give of our time, of our money, of our sense of entitlement, of our own desire for self-satisfaction, when we sacrifice so that we can meet a practical need, we are demonstrating that we know that love is more than words. And in verse 18, John says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And this verse just sort of seems like this summary plea. Listen, my friends, he says, talk is cheap. Forget the religious rhetoric, because actions will speak louder than words. So let's put some action to our love. Now our time's gone, and I can't even touch on the last six verses. And in some ways, it's a completely new section. And on the other hand, it kind of continues the theme of really knowing that we belong to Jesus. And verse 23 is clear and straightforward. It says this, And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Personal trust in Jesus comes first. And then we love others with more than words. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word and we thank you that even in these closing verses of this section that we're looking at, we are reminded that it is the gift of the Holy Spirit. That when we cross that line of faith, when we cross over from the side of death to the side of life, the side of love, that you then fill us with your Holy Spirit. It's your Holy Spirit that actually enables us to cross over in the first place. It enables us to do what is right. And it's your Holy Spirit that helps us to love others. And so, Lord Jesus, we're just asking that for us to do this on our own strength would be impossible. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would fill us today as we have been singing. And that as we go, we know that we don't leave your presence, but that you go with us, that you're in us, that you remain in us, and you whisper to us throughout the day. So may, be, may we be aware of your presence 
And may we be aware of the needs around us so that we can respond in real practical ways and thereby demonstrate our love for one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.